Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome everyone to the Really 007 podcast for this very special episode where we'll be where we will be chatting to Bond author extraordinaire Charlie Higson. Charlie will be known to many of you as an actor, comedian, singer, writer, director and author of five young Bond novels. And now he's released his first adult Bond novel on His Majesty's Secret Service. And we can't wait to discuss all these amazing achievements and more with Charlie right now. There are various places you can find our podcast to listen in and follow, including YouTube, iTunes and Spotify and our website with our Poddojo Media Network. A special shout out for this one to a friend of the show and huge fan of Bond novels, novels from the original Flemings right up to the Higson. It's David Lowbridge Ellis, a.k.a. Licensed to Queer. Charlie, how the devil are you? It is an absolute pleasure to meet you today. Well, well, likewise. Yes, I, I always enjoy talking about well, I always enjoy talking about myself, obviously, but uh, I, uh, I also do very much enjoy talking about Bond. And I, I think it's a passion that's shared by quite a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. it absolutely is. When, when was the first time you think that you became a James Bond fan? What was the moment when you thought, oh, my God, I absolutely love this guy and this world? Well, the first film that I ever remember going to see in the cinema was Thunderball oh. when it first came out. And... I I must have been to the cinema before then, but but I, that that's the one that really stuck in my mind. You know, it it felt like a real event. You know, big screen back then. This is the early sixties. All the screens were big screens. They hadn't been chopped yeah. up into tiny little things. So you'd go there, huge, great cinema, and there'd be a circle upstairs and stalls downstairs, and you know the music comes blasting out. And this was just about the most exciting thing that ever happened to me. And I remember it must have been very soon after it came out because I got a a sort of there was a sort of booklet like you'd get at a cinema, like a program with a load of photographs and interviews and bits and pieces in it, which I wish I'd kept because, as you know, these things do 
seem to accumulate some value, but um, it's lost in the mist of times. But I would spend a lot of time poring over that and kind of reliving the film. And, and it just felt very exciting. And, you know, I'd obviously watch lots of TV where you'd get a certain type of hero in something. And James Bond felt very, very different. He was quite dark. He did some quite nasty things um, in that film, you know, like in the nightclub scene where he effectively uses a woman as a sort of human shield and then mm. makes a, a little quip about her as he sits her down at someone's table. What does he say? Like, I think she's had too much. Dead. Yeah. yeah, she's just she's dead. dead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I oh, is that really what he says? Yeah, yeah, she's just dead. I didn't ever really think it was a quip. I thought it was just like a statement of fact. Like, yep, she's no. she <laughs> literally dead. Well, yeah. you know, and, uh, but well, I mean, yeah, that sums up Bond and that, well, <laughs> 1960s Bond and that sums up that film, you know, and, and so for me, after that, going to the cinema in the in the sixties sort of meant going to see James Bond. You know, the, the films were always on, and the old films would always come back and re be repeated. So, so, so yeah. I mean, it it was only years later when I was in my twenties that I got around to reading the books. So for me, it was it was Sean Connery in the sixties, right? And did the books sort of like. Was it like a? Did it reinvigorate the love or supercharge the love? Or because for me, when I read the books, it was like, whoa, this is it's obviously a lot different from the films and a lot much more of a harder edge. And you could go into a lot more details about the character. And I always loved like the small details, like what the character ate and stuff like that. Yes. Was, did it just open the world up for you? Well, it did. I mean, also the books. There's a sort of strangeness in the books that you don't get in the films. I mean, you know, some of the more outrageous Roger Moore ones, perhaps. You know, it's like, you know, if you're reading um, Dr. No for the first time, uh, having seen the film, you're really not expecting Bond to have a fight with a giant squid kept <laughs> kept in a cage. Um, yes. <laughs> and you kind of think, this is, this is quite bizarre. Um, and, you know, I, I was instantly struck with how, how how well written the books are in terms of the energy and the excitement and, and, you know, Fleming was supremely good at writing about action uh, and, and, and doing things. And, you know, he also said that he thought the success of the books was down to the fact that he had an adolescent mind. And there's a lot of that in the films where you can see he's just sort of enjoying something that, that you could say, well, this is like a kid's book. So it's got that <laughs> yeah. sort of balance of being very adult. And as you say, quite hard edged and dark, but also there will be these sort of mad flights of fantasy that he just enjoyed, you know, like the the, the Spang brothers in Diamonds of Forever traveling around on this kind of Wild West steam train, which is, which is ridiculous. But, you know, Fleming liked it, so he put it in. <laughs> <laughs> and what what about so we've got the love of bond but like what about yourself as a storyteller i mean you know the amount of there that is a huge body of work there is a huge body of work that you've compiled here for those that don't know we, we were discussing just before we we press record is it about the 23 24 bookmark for you now well Charlie? it's something like that if you count absolutely everything that i worked on that ended up in a book yes <laughs> i mean they're not all lengthy novels um, and you know they range from, you know, a picture book, kids books for younger kids, right through to the, the, the young James Bond, and then books for teenagers, and obviously my adult books, of which of which I've written quite a few now. So, um, yeah, uh, yes, body of work. I think you described it as yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think in the game we call it a bi- bibliography in a way, don't we? I think I don't. <laughs> I've never been brave enough to call anything like that, to be honest. If you like, but I can't remember what the actual what was the actual question <laughs> about your origins as a storyteller. I mean, we oh, were right. a big yes, reader yes, as yes. a kid. We, we were uh, always oh, yeah. a big reader. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I loved reading, and you know, when I was growing up, there was nothing else to do really. Um, you know, you'd get like an hour of kids' TV a day on the TV, no computers or, or games consoles, and no internet, none of that. So, yeah, to, you know, you went outside and played or you, or, or you, or you read books and comics, which, and, you know, and, I, and I, did, I did all of those things. Um, yeah, I mean, I loved reading and I loved writing. I started writing from quite an early age because, I, I, because it seemed to me to be a sort of magic that you could take a pencil and a piece of paper and and just by making those kind of weird squiggly marks on the paper suddenly you a whole world comes alive characters mm. come alive and, and you know they're walking and talking and, and they can make you laugh or cry or you know you want to kill them and i just thought well this is extraordinary that this process awakes in people's minds these thoughts and you and you somehow can send your thoughts directly through these these scribbles into someone's mind and you can do that across time and space and and i just loved that idea of creativity of making things up um and 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 when i became a teenager i I very much got into sci-fi and fantasy so i wrote a lot of sort of fantasy books and you know making up languages and things when i was supposed to be doing my homework um (laughs) and i never showed it to anybody because because really i did them because because i liked i liked making things up and to to spent my life and have got a job being paid to make things up has been absolutely fantastic <laughs> yeah i mean i think if i could try and explain to someone else what the power of writing can do and and how it costs nothing to write does it you know it's like yeah. I, you just said a pencil a piece of paper and you're off and you're away and the power in writing i would just i, I love just what you just said there because it's it's something that i totally believe in as well you know and the fact that you know you get to make stories and connect with people it's an ancient thing isn't it storytelling is a way of comforting mm. of sharing knowledge it's a societal thing that we all do and we always have done oh it's also were, were there any particular books that you were really into growing up? i know you mentioned sci-fi but was there any book that changed well, everything uh, for you well uh i mean in the in the 60s there was it was a heyday of um historical fiction for kids there were loads of great writers i mean some of them are still sort of read a bit like um Mary Reno or whatever, but but there were loads of them, like Jeffrey Trees and Henry Trees. I, I devoured them. And actually, funny enough, I was I was reading. Uh, is it called Maurice Drouin? I think a French author who wrote a series of books. The first of which is The Iron King, which is about um, uh, it's historical fiction in medieval France. But the 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 introduction was written by he's not J.R.R. Uh, George Martin, George R R R R. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Not J R R R R Tolkien. Um, I thought you were going to say J R Hartley from the J R Hartley. Yes, it's it's an extremely long-winded shaggy dog joke. um, And he said there's a huge correlation between historical fiction and fantasy fiction. And he said that people who like one tend to like the other. And obviously, famously, Game of Thrones is sort of inspired by English history, particularly the Wars of the Roses. Um, so I was really into um, historical fiction. And then I got into fantasy fiction via 
um, Lord of the Rings and Michael Moorcock. And in my early teenage years, that, that's what I read, you know, a lot of. And then, and then got into more of the sort of sci-fi, sci-fi area. Um, I, I've always, what I always loved was a story that would take me out of my own boring, dull little life in a little, you know, where I lived and going to school and would take me on an adventure, take me somewhere else, um, time and space or, or, you know, fantastical worlds. Um, I loved that. I had no interest in reading like stories about, you know, school stories or, or you know, football stories or anything like that. I wanted fantasy and adventure and 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 to go out there and and you know i think that's one of the reasons we love james bond and those those early james bond books you know in the drab 50s where england is still recovering from the war there is still rationing nobody has much money suddenly these adventures come where james bond is traveling around the world meeting beautiful women extraordinary villains and eating as you mentioned earlier fantastic food you know this was there was a huge fantasy element to bond which is sometimes forgotten today like like kimchi Charlie. well exactly and you know i <laughs> yes i mean in in, in <laughs> my book there is, yes that 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 in my in my bond book on on his Majesty's secret service yes but a bond is is getting into uh, food that is good for a healthy gut because he relies on a gut sense and gut feeling to give him a, a fraction of a second advantage over the enemy. He's letting his primitive thinking gut um, <laughs> act before his slow, slow working, meticulous frontal brain. And so, yeah, he's, he's eating kimchi and drinking, <laughs> and drinking kombucha. And why not? You know, Fleming would have been fascinated by that kind of thing. He always was. And he always was searching out exotic and interesting things for Bond uh, to eat and drink. Of course, wasn't it in in was it in the Thunderball novel where he's he's literally uh, he's been sent to Scrublands, obviously, and his Bond is so depressed with what he's being made to eat and all that kind of stuff, and M's making him do it and all that kind of thing, and they have that brilliant back and forth about it all. And you were absolutely right; Fleming would have loved all that stuff. Absolutely, well, totally. you know, he, he was you know he was he was fascinated by what was going on in the world and what was going on around him, and he was always looking for new things and different things to to write about. So. So your your first three novels, King of the Ants, Happy Now and Full Whack, all come together around the same time as your sort of your TV comedy career is really sort of exploding. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, um, I started getting into comedy writing in the late 80s. I'd been friends of Paul Whitehouse since we'd met at university in 1977. We'd done various other things, but, you know, we'd always made each other laugh. And another friend we'd met over the years was um, Harry Enfield, and he was starting to to do performances where he needed people to write with him. And so Paul and I started to write with him, and then we ended up writing for Stavros and then co-creating loads of money for um, Saturday Night Live, which became Friday Night Live. Oh, you! Shut your mouth and look at my wad! Loads of money! This is a journey into money. Loads of money, and, and and yeah, so so I was getting into comedy, but I was writing. I had always been writing books, um, right? And and you know, as I said, not showing them to publishers, but I, I, I did eventually get round to writing a crime book, which became 
King of the Ants. And, mm. and so that was happening right through then. And, and there was a fourth book actually called Getting Rid of Mr. Kitchen. And, yes. you know, it, 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 but things were sort of coming, becoming difficult. I remember desperately trying to finish. Uh, I remember desperately trying to finish Getting Rid of Mr. Kitchen before my first child was born. Right. Uh, and thinking, I've got to get this out of the way because things are going to change. And also, Paul and I were, had been working on Harry Enfield television program in the early 90s. It's his first sketch show that he was doing. Yeah. It, uh, it just got to a point where it was too much work. I mean, writing a novel is a lot of work and you don't get paid very much money for it. But writing TV, particularly if you're writing with someone else, as I was with Paul, can be a bit quicker. But it also pays a lot more. So, so really, the 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 nineteen eighty four, which I think, well, nineteen eighty four was the first. Nineteen eighty four was when the Fast Show launched the first series. So, that sort of brought a full stop to, to me having time to to work on books and to give it proper attention. Because Paul and I ended up not only writing it but also performing in it, but we were also producing in it. So, producing right. it. So, you know, most writers on a comedy thing you're right for three or four months of the year or whatever. And then the rest of the year, you can do something else. You can write something else. You can work on something else. But for us, it was taking us a year nonstop every day to, to make a series because we were there at the beginning of the writing process. Then we went through the whole putting it all together and filming it. And then we're there for the edit. So it's, it's, it's a long process. And then as soon as we finish one series, we would start on the next. So there was no, wow. absolutely no way you can fit in writing a novel. Just in terms of the writing process, um, Charlie. So, Obviously, you're writing novels and coming up with the ideas yourself, and then you've also got this TV comedy writing kind of. Presumably, those are completely, completely different processes. One is collaborative, and one is you know you on your own, or other things that you know you can. I don't know things that you can pick up from one that you can put into the other, or are they just completely? Did you keep them completely separate, and do you continue to do so? Well, no, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting question. I mean, in the end, it's, it's the same process. It's writing. It is it is mm. using words to create worlds or whatever, to create something that wasn't there before. The big difference is if you, if you write a novel, when you've finished it, it it's done. It's there. You, you, there isn't i mean there's there's more stages to the process of getting it published and in the shops and in, and for people to know that it exists and to actually buy it and read it which is quite hard to get them to do that but when they do they simply have to open the book and as i said before my my thoughts my words are going straight into their head and they are creating in their heads everything else now if you're screenwriting it's a very different process and in a sense you know a script is like a blueprint for a finished thing and you know if 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 your script is not filmed whether it's tv or film or everything it doesn't really exist and people have mm. very little interest in reading scripts of things that were never made so you're it's a blueprint and and you have then got to get in huge teams of people to make that a thing You've got to get actors and costume and makeup. You've got to have uh, designers who can build all the sets and location managers to find the places you're going to go and film. You've got a camera team, a sound team, I mean, and all the office staff. It's a huge, huge mm. undertaking. They are doing all the work that if you write a book, the reader is just, just, just does in their head. Yeah. And, you know, you can write a book in which an army of 10,000 knights charge off a cliff 
but you know if you write yeah. that in a, <laughs> in a script someone's got to find twelve thousand nights to ride off a cliff <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. i mean cgi is, is is changing a lot of that but it, it's still mm. a, a vast undertaking and uh, and both of them are huge fun i mean the nice thing about writing the book is is yes you have editors and copy editors and whatever but essentially it's you you're there mm. you're doing all of that you are you know casting director direct you know, producer director mm. the whole thing um and you can tell any story you like and there there aren't really any restrictions on what you can write about and where it can go and what it can be but it can be well it is a very solitary process it's just you at your computer by yourself mm. with your imaginary friends now i mean i quite like that I, i'm quite happy with that <laughs> but you know it, it it is it it can be lonely and, and and it can be quite draining because you are relied on for everything everything has got to be squeezed out of your head and what's nice about filming is it is a collaborative process mm-hmm. so you're going in you know back in the day paul and i we're making a far show we go into the far show office at the bbc which is full of people working with you for you and you know you'll be working with with all of those creative people there's a there's a fantastic um part in william goldman's book what's the first one called sure. well <laughs> william goldman the great hollywood screenwriter who mm, wrote yeah. yes the likes of butch Cassidy and the sundance kid yeah. marathon man um oh yeah yeah <laughs> i've got it on the shelf here somewhere i can never find anything on my shelf but anyway uh, <laughs> that's sad Adven- uh, yeah adventures in the screen trade William Goldman in Adventures in the Screen Trade, there's a great bit at the end where he, he's got, you know, he's talked about, you know, the screenwriter being, you know, what it's like to be a screenwriter in this process. And he said, you know, this has all been about me and being a screenwriter, but it doesn't really work like that. And there's a bit where he's got a, a little short story and he's saying, let's go through the process of trying to get it made. And he goes and talks to a director and he talks to a you know, a producer and he talks to a set designer and they're, and they're all saying, well, yeah, we can make, do this scene like this and we do this like that. And, you know, it, it is very interesting about that collaborative process. And if it's a good collaborative process and you're, and you're working with clever, creative people, they will all be bringing something to it. They'll be helping you solve mm. problems. They'll be coming up with new ideas, different ways of doing it. And then when you get the actors involved, they will all bring something mm. of their own to it. And then you've got the music you can add and all that stuff. So you're not, it's not just you. Mm. Um, and, and so it is, a, it is, it has been fantastic over the years to, to just keep switching between the two. Hello there. This is Thomas Wheatley, or I should say Saunders, Section B Vienna. Now you're listening to really 007. I'm under the impression you're the best. So do listen. It would be remiss of us to say, wouldn't it, particularly Rob, when we were growing up, we were probably like 11, 12 when Harry Enfield's programmes came oh. out. I know you'd done stuff with Reeves and Mortimer, which we adore. And then the Fast Show, there was like a group of us in our class. We were probably the absolute peak age, like 13. Yeah. Some of the, I mean, it's, a lot of it is very, very silly. There's a bit of satire in it, and especially some of the ones you've done as Harry and Paul was a lot, bit more satirical, wasn't it? But yeah. I, honestly, Charlie, some of the, some of these characters that you've created, I mean, there's, the, you know, there's the, 
I was thinking one of them, of course, is, is not Ian Fleming, but Barb Fleming. Barb Fleming, <laughs> yes. Um, obviously, obviously a nod to Ian there. Was it? Um, that, that, right. Well, yeah, I mean, no, I was I was a Fleming fan. Yeah. And, you know, it just, it, it, you know, it was the perfect name for him because of, because <laughs> yeah. of the phlegm, yeah. the phlegm part. The phlegm, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> really not much to choose between these two guns <coughs> in terms of action and accuracy but you <coughs> you will notice a marked difference in weight <coughs> the gun <coughs> the gun on my left here the uh, the <coughs> the box lock is <coughs> the gun on my left here the <coughs> the box lock the <coughs> box lock the, <coughs> the gun <laughs> oh, my left here. The gun. Oh, my left here. The box light. The gun on my left. The gun on my left. And you know, my character of, of Swiss Tony was was also yeah. he he was he was kind of obsessed with James Bond. And yeah. when, when I originally did the voice on, it was actually on the Smell of Rose and Mortem. I did Swiss Tony first. Yeah. Yeah. It was my terrible attempt to to do to do Sean Connery. Customer Tony, as a customer, she's she's a, a girl, a woman. Ah, oh, she's beautiful. She wants to ask you about the Peugeot. Wouldn't be your ideal night out with a lady, Paul. Tony, she is in the hall. She wants to ask you about the, the Peugeot. Never pressurise the customer. Yeah, but she, honestly... Let's her look. She may find something she likes better. Something more expensive. Yeah, Tony, honestly... So tell me, your ideal night out. Uh, I don't know. May, maybe we'd go down the pub and then... Uh... No, no. Can I stop you there? You see, you've fallen at the first fence. <laughs> you do not take a lady down the pub. You take her to the finest restaurant in town, where you eat only the best food, freshly prepared by an award-winning chef. You drink fine wines. Then you take her to your hotel. Best hotel in town, mind. You carry her up to your room, where there are Belgian chocolates, more fine wines, quality champagne on ice, satin sheets on the bed, maybe a poem on the pillow, a single red rose. Then slowly and gently, you undress her, but keep your own clothes on because nobody likes to see a man in the nude. <laughs> then you do together what men and women have done since the dawn of time. Only you must make her feel that what you were doing there has never been done before. She's going, Tony. Tony, she's going. Let her go. Sometimes you've just got to have the courage to let a woman go out of your life. Let her go. You can't just... For God's sake, Paul, do you not realise I am having a nervous breakdown? Me and my brother, uh, Charlie, we can't get through a Sunday tea. You know, if anything on the table is a tiny little bit burnt, it's like, <laughs> at the edge of this sausage, it almost looks a little... <laughs> Yes, and, you know, and, and you know, there's a little, he was one of my favourite characters and great fun oh, he's to He's just do. incredible. Yeah. Love the sound of the seagulls, don't you, Katie? It's very evocative, isn't it? It's a lovely sound. Now, I'm just putting some more blue in the water there. Do you notice as the day goes on, the colour of the sea changes almost by the minute, doesn't it? It's a wonderful blue, isn't it? It is lovely. Andy, 
reds of the roofs there against the water really jump out at you, don't they? Very vivid. And the white walls with those windows there, very dark, almost black. Johnny. Black, yes, black. I shall need to get the black out. Johnny. Black. Johnny. Black. Black. Black for the sky and the sea. Black. All black, like the procession of night that leads us into the valley of despair. Black. Where are we sleeping tonight, Mother? In Father's grave. We try to hide, but he claims us in the end. He always claims us. Death! 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 I think we'd better go home now, dear. So cold the snow! So cold! All this so futile! I'm blind! The gulls have plucked out my eyes! <laughs> We crawl on our knees towards our doom. <laughs> and it's quite interesting because at the time they're doing it, and even now still, you know, obviously there was never any racial connotations in it at all. But yeah. you do sometimes think, you know, if I'm in somewhere and someone's talking about the character, I'm thinking I probably shouldn't start shouting black, black, black at the top of my voice. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yes, I mean that, that I must say the really lovely thing about the fast show is that people do still love it and that those kind of catchphrases and characters s- still live on. I mean, the phrase that I use most is um oh and then I did a marvelous uh, recording for a podcast, which was nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. the it is the it is the, the most useful middle class catchphrase. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Mark Williams that one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, Mark actually was the the one of us that, that probably stuck most closely to the idea of the far show, which is keep it very, very short. You do you 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 do your funny thing. You say your catchphrase and you and you're off. Yeah. Um. Uh, you don't get involved in 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 longer areas. And he came up with loads of great yeah. little characters like that. This like Jess, Jesse's diets, yes. Yeah, I've mostly been eating. <laughs> yeah, and people still and people still use that a lot. This week. I have been mostly eating bourbon biscuits. <laughs> and Scorchio, of course. Is, oh, yeah. Oh, don't. Yeah. Is, is, is still used by weather weather forecasters. And, yeah. you know, there will come a time when I perhaps some of these phrases will still be used, but the far show itself has been lost in the mists of time. Not to us, Charlie. Absolutely not. I mean, I'm talking uh, like two or three million years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, the, when those, uh, when those uh, Mexican aliens uh, are actually in charge of everything. <laughs> and there'll be people, people living in their domes on Mars and they'll look out yeah. and say, oh, Scotchio. <laughs> Rob, we, we, we said we, we daren't mention this one because it's a bit, it's a bit, rude. It's a bit rude. Uh, <laughs> might as well. The... <laughs> Your character when he I don't know whether he had a name or anything. Whenever he crouched down or moved slightly, the you know <laughs> where it's going. I know, I know where this one's going, yes. Yes, are you ready to order? Uh, I think so, yes. Uh I'll have the chef's pate and also the grilled. Oh, I'm sorry, I've just come. <laughs> and for main course, I'll have roast rack of I do beg your pardon, I've just come again. The roast rack of, of lamb. Uh, and I'll have um, 
lamb's kidney. Um, sorry, I've just come. <laughs> and uh, for wine, sir? So, no, it's all right. Could you just order us a taxi, please? We've both just come. <laughs> no, he never had a. He never had a name. No. Um, he never had a name. Because oh. I, I mean, I, when when I first saw that, I didn't know what it meant. No idea. All right. You know. <laughs> so the first time that happened to you, you thought, oh, 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 yes, I get it. Oh. it all makes sense now. <laughs> yes, I, I dare say I didn't have quite such a casual revelation. <laughs> your oh, character. Dear, Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, also, you also had, you wrote an episode of Marple, didn't you? And I you, did, yes. And you played and, James Bond. Oh, yeah, I know. Yes, and and it, and and actually, the the whole reason I got the job was because of the James Bond right. connections. Because the, the 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 mammoth, the company that made them, they approached me and they said, "We're we're making the new Miss Marples, and what we're trying to do in 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 the stuff we're making now is is set it set them in a specific time, and and if possible, put in an actual person from that time." into the story to sort of sort of root it and give it an extra layer of interest and they said we've got this this one that we've never done before with this current with the new team which is caribbean mystery which is the only time that uh, miss marple ever leaves england mm. and they said you know we want to set it um it's kind of in the early 50s and it would be great if miss marple met ian fleming and and they said so so we thought of you which was nice. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and they said, would I like to have a go at, at writing it? And I said, well, that'd be brilliant. Yeah. And as I was writing it, I thought, well, if I'm putting Ian Fleming in. It'd be good to get put James Bond in as well. Yeah. Um, and obviously the the famous, who knows if it's actually, it's true because there's, there's lots of other uh, candidates for the job but ian fleming always claimed that he was looking for a name for james bond and he was he was really into nature and bird watching and um he loved snorkeling and and and, and any sort of observations of nature and he looked up on his shelf and he had this book birds of the west indies by james bond so i thought of a scene whereby at the hotel where miss marple's staying they're having a talk about birds of the west indies being given by James Bond. Ian Fleming turns up to the talk and, you know, they have a discussion with Miss Marple. What's he doing there? Oh, you know, I'm working on this little spy story or whatever. It's a bit corny, but fun. And he says, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm just looking for a name. Uh, at which point James Bond comes on stage, the Amer a real American ornithologist who says, oh, good evening. Uh, my name's Bond, uh, James Bond. Uh, <laughs> and we see Ian Fleming Oh, and sort of scribble something down in his, in his notebook. It's a bit of fun, and I thought nothing more of it. You know, the, the, given the script, eventually they get around to making it, and they're very pleased with it all. And it's all filmed in South Africa. And the, actually, one of the great things about writing that script originally was that I didn't have to worry about anything other than the writing. As I say, and on a, on most of the projects I do, I end up sort of show running, which means you are responsible for absolutely everything, and so it's it's quite stressful and it's a lot of work. So the idea of just writing a script and giving it to the production company, you knew exactly what they're doing. So they make hundreds of these bloody things. You don't have to worry about that side of things. Uh, and I could sit at home, you know, carrying on doing something else, and I would start to get reports of like 
you know, people go to South Africa because it's reliably sunny all year round and and it looks like there's bits of it that look like almost anywhere else in the world, including sort of suburban England. So a lot of advertisers, for instance, in the winter will go and film a, a, an English advert. But of course, it was pissing with rain. <laughs> and I kept getting these reports back. Oh, God, this is impossible. It's just raining the whole time. We've used up all our wet weather cover. Because what you do is if you're doing exterior scenes, you will build into the day. If it's raining, we'll go into the into here and film this bit. And and you've got like a three week shoot, and they you know they said after two days we've used up all our wet weather cover. After two days, we don't know what to do. But they soldiered on, and I thought it's not my problem. They'll make it, and it'll be fine, and I won't need that day to day stress. And then they rang up and said, "Look, we think it would be quite fun if you played James Bond." And I thought, <laughs> I'm never going to get this over again. Yeah. <laughs> so I was put on a plane and and flown down to South Africa, where it was pissing with rain. And they were still trying to film outdoors under these huge like, plastic oh, yeah. sheets and things. And yes, I got to be James Bond. And and you know the fun thing, if if you're on a a film shoot or a TV shoot, you get your your trailer, which is usually a sort of long caravan with which has got three different little dressing rooms in it. And they don't put the actor's name on the door, they put the character name. <laughs> oh. So it said James Bond. Oh. And I made sure to get photographed <laughs> outside it. <laughs> uh and yes, I do have a credit now on IMDB as, as James Bond. Uh the seventh James Bond. Yeah. yeah. It's, a pop, it's a pop quiz question waiting to happen, ah, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it all got very meta. <laughs> very quickly, I should imagine. It's so so amazing. Is there is there any was of, of across all the amazing projects you've been involved with? Is there any of all? Because obviously, found so many of them just un, un, almost unbearably funny. Is there any that you just almost couldn't complete filming because it was yeah. just <laughs> on the on the set? It was just too almost too hard to complete. I know you're all the greatest professionals, but well, was there a moment that was just too almost uh, too tough? I I was terrible at doing any filming with with Vic and Bob, um, <laughs> because I was such fans of theirs. Yeah. And then I'd be in a sketch with them and I'd just be laughing at what what they were doing. I mean, like when, when we did the sketch with the the Swiss Tony sketch where they were their characters called the bra men who are convinced that everybody's trying to look at their bras. <laughs> and they, even though they're obviously not wearing bras and they go to a, a car, secondhand car dealer and they're trying to buy a car. And combination of me doing this stupid voice and them doing their characters, I just couldn't get through it. Swiss Tonys. This is the place to do it, right? Look, there's a car, Pat. It is a car. It's a nice brown car. Right. <laughs> it? It's got hinges, Steve. I've got a gear stick a bit out of the way, man. It is a bit of a queer spot. Hello! Good afternoon, Swiss Tony. Hello, Swiss. We've heard a lot about you, but not all of it good. <laughs> anyway, it's Patty, yeah? He wants a car. Someone for him to get about in. Isn't that right, Pat? That's right, Swiss. Now, he wants windows that wind up. And then wind back down here. You know, I want to be able to have air outside the car as well as inside. So. Very wise, sir. Very wise indeed. Yes, you're quite right. Now, it must be eye-catching. That's right, like, you know, like a kingfisher's eye-catching. Oh, that's very eye-catching, a kingfisher, isn't it? Yeah. Very eye-catching bird indeed, sir. Is there anything I've missed out, Pat? Wipers. Pat? Not in front of Swiss Tony. 
It's about time you learn how to wipe yourself as well, anyway. Dead, man. Wait. Windscreen wipers. <laughs> oh, he wants windscreen wipers. Now, that's our requirements, Johnny. Can you sort us out? You want something airy, spacious and eye-catching. Have you considered a convertible at all? Oh, oh yes. Look at that. Suits you down to the ground, sir. I know. You know, nice. I can picture you now driving along in the summer with your top down. Hey! you take a fellow who'll drive along with me brass on. you want a car salesman, not a pimp? Exactly. Come on, Jim. Let's not hang it out talking to this pervert. Hi, and you can stick your car. How are you? Well, that's my car stolen. I'll just go and call the police. Then I'll get back to my eggs. And it's actually it's a it's a nightmare on set when it's that happens because you really got a, well you've got like fifty people, people there, there yeah. staring at you thinking well we've got to get this fucking sketch finished yeah. today. <laughs> <laughs> what's he laughing at and you know it's like being a kid again it's like laughing in church that the more you know yeah. you're not supposed to be doing it the more you do it and it ended up you know a lot of the shots because you know comedy is usually works best if you're seeing action and reaction in the same shot so two shots and three shots are really good rather than cutting from a single to a single but most of that sketch is shot on singles because I, I think in the end I probably had to be removed from set so they could do their line. <laughs> and again, there's another one of it's one of my favourite sketches of theirs, which is the weird sort of southerners with a a melon patch and they're drinking black milk, and I'm this strange American interviewer. And exactly the same thing happened on on that. Um, luckily, I I didn't laugh in the sketch where I'm taking monkeys to be baptised and. <laughs> And their characters, I can't remember what they're called, but they keep always trying to get out of the car and they can't open the doors because they're parked next to a tree or something. And they get into a dispute with dispute with me and my car has got monkeys in the back. And there's lots of the shots of the monkeys sort of going... Mm-hmm. And then I have a heart attack and say, there's a voiceover. Uh, it's something like... Who will take my monkeys to be baptised now that I'm dead? Uh, But I didn't laugh in that Now that I am gone, who will take my precious monkeys to be baptised? But I'm knowing on the fast show, most of the time we didn't corpse. We we got on with it. Um, Right. But I tell you, one of the hardest sketches to film is, is, is one that, it's it's kind of my favourite. It's a lot of people's favourite one. It's the Ted and Ralph drinking game. Sketch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and we, we, we filmed that in a lovely, well, very characterful pub. We were up, I think we were on the North York Moors or somewhere. Yeah. And and location filming particularly is quite gruelling. You're up every day, very early, out and about, hard work. And because Paul and I are producing, we've got to be there, you know, for every second of that filming. So, and it was the end of the day, we came, finally got around to getting to this pub and inevitably we were probably already running about two hours late. Everybody's exhausted, um, cold and wet. And we got this sketch to do. And Paul and I knew, well, everybody knew in it, that it was a good sketch. That it was a funny sketch. We worked very hard on those scripts and we started filming it. Now, if you're filming a sketch and one person is not quite sure of their lines, 
it does it usually doesn't matter too much because everyone else is there and you've got the structure and they've got the cues and and you can sort of pick it up but it soon became clear that none of us had learnt their lines properly because of this bloody drinking game yeah of when <laughs> you're supposed to say aubergine and yeah. <laughs> potato <laughs> tomato <laughs> And so again, you know, what I'm saying about the, the the you know you want a group shot when they're all doing the name the names of the vegetables <laughs> and bouncing off each other. But you know, it would be sorry, aubergine. What what tomato is it? Oh, start again. <laughs> and Mark Mylod, the, the the director, brilliant director, who was the lead director on Succession. So he's oh right, on wow, to great wow. things in the world. Um, Amazing. You know, he was getting really frustrated. And we're just thinking, you know, time is ticking away. The crew are going to want to go home any minute now. And we're just thinking, oh, God, you know, we've, we've caught this up. It'd be a disaster. And Mark just got the cameraman and said, right, point the camera at him. He'd say, All right, say potato. Potato. Great. Okay. Now say tomato. Tomato. Now say this line. And he literally had to go around singles all around the table doing that. But once it's all, you know, the dust has settled and you get around to actually editing it. It's fine. It worked. And, and, uh, and, you know, sometimes the sketches that are most fun to film are the ones that at least fun to watch yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and vice versa. So, you know, we were, we were really pleased in the end that we did manage to, to capture it. A lot of it's in Paul's reaction, you know, to receiving the news as well, isn't it? <laughs> well, he's the piece of piss is job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never, yeah, never, never has to say anything. He just stands there. Right, yeah. I, wouldn't yeah. know, I wouldn't know about that, sir. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. In fact, you know, he always says that he found filming filming those sketches really boring. <laughs> you know, he's not able to do a big funny voice and prance about the place. Yeah, true. He's just standing there like that. All oh, right, sir. Just <laughs> listening, listening to me drone on. Yeah. <laughs> so hard. To <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that when that the sort of the the final line landed, you know, about his wife, and I remember it being like a kind of comedy I'd never felt or experienced before. Yeah. You know, like yeah. such a challenging thing he's being told, but delivered in such an excruciatingly <laughs> funny way. Yeah. And I remember not knowing how to feel. <laughs> and I suppose that's great, isn't it? You know, like to, to challenge your audience in that sense to push yeah, a boundary. If, if you can take your audience with you. And that mm. they sort of trust you and, in, and enjoy it. You can you can push things into 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 interesting areas and and take and take risks. Right, ding ding, round two. Tomato, what? Aubergine, wood. Potato, you. Turnip, like. Carrots, two. Asparagus, drink. Oh, ho, ho. tomato point. Aubergine of. Potato best, turn it, please! <laughs> Ted. Ted, there's something I need to speak to you about. I nominate Mr. Mayhew. <laughs> oh, sorry? No, 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 forfeit, forfeit. You have to say tomato. I beg your pardon? <laughs> You've got to put a vegetable in front of each word in the right order. Look, <clears throat> so it goes, right? Tomatoes. Aubergine, potato, turnip, carrot, asparagus, then you add one of your own, and then it's back to tomatoes again. Yes, I'm sorry, I really have no idea what... No, 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 no! Perfect, perfect! Tomato, you, aubergine, have, potato, two, turnip, say, carrot, the, 
asparagus, roy, broccoli, vegetables. Porto <laughs> <laughs> or aubergine, it's potato A, turnip forfeit. It's a drinking game, sir. Ted, I really do need... Ah! Sorry, under normal circumstances, believe you me, I, I would like nothing more than to uh, join you in your game, but not tonight, please. Go on, sir, go on, go on. It'll be a bit fun, sir. It's Ted, really. I'm Tomato, ears, aubergine, your potato drinks. It's all right, <laughs> we've got a new nominee. Well, hey! Yeah. It's a private matter. Bong! <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, tomato, it's. Aubergine A. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Potato, private turnip matter. Oh, that's right. You're in the hang of it now. That's right. That's right. Don't be embarrassed, sir. Go on, it's just a little bit of fun. Tomato, Ted, aubergine, your potato... Wife's turnip dead. <laughs> sorry, I, I mean, tomato, sorry. If we take audience and now turn that into readership. Yeah. And, and we look at, was it was it 96 when Silverfin came out? Was that? 96, that right? no, no. It no, is, that, is it 2006? Yeah, that sounds more like it, yeah. 2008. Sorry, I'm no. I mean, my, I stopped. Um, decades I, mixed I, up. You know, I I stopped writing books in '94 when the Far Show sort of started in earnest, and mm. then I picked up again. Yeah, in early 2000s. Mm. My kids were getting to an age where I wanted to be around them a bit more. You know, when they were really small, they don't know whether you're there or not. You know, I mean, it's tough on my wife, but you know, I was able to go away on a lot more location shooting and, and, and not be around so much. But once they're at an age where they're, you know, they're at school and, you know, they need support parents. I wanted to be around more and not to, to be, you know, out of the house at five in the morning and back at 10 at night. So, and I'd done a lot of TV back to back. I was quite knackered and I was approached out of the blue by a woman called Kate Jones, who had been my editor on my four, crime books that I wrote in the early 90s that we talked about before. She was working for the Fleming estate, um, trying to revitalize the literary side of it. And she approached me and said, look, I'm working for the Ian Fleming estate. I can't say too much about this or top secret, but, you know, would you have any interest in writing a James Bond book? At which point I thought, Christ, how the hell would you go about that? How would you write a, 
anything about James Bond that hasn't been written before in all of the novels and the continuation novels and done in all the films. And I think I don't know where to start. And he said, well, and she said, no, it's not for an adult. It's a, it's young Bond. It's teenage James Bond. At which point I just, I just thought, well, yes, I can see that. I mean, my, I had, my boys were of the right age to read this, these books. And I just thought, yeah, I could write an amazing fantasy adventure story that they, that they would really like. And I could just put in all the things that I loved doing when I was that age as a boy and, 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 and sort of then pumping them up and making them work in the world of James Bond. And I sort of almost had the first book fully formed in my head as before she'd finished the sentence. Uh, And I said, God, I would, I said, yeah, I would love to do that. So it came at exactly the right time for me because I mean, she, she knew my writing inside out and she knew what I was like to work with. And I, like Fleming, was always have always been a big fan of American hard-boiled crime fiction, which is very stripped to the bone. It's not there's not lots of flowery writing and pages and pages of dis- descriptions. It's getting on. It's talking about things. It's using brand names instead of you know you don't describe a car over two pages. You say it was a was a fifty two pink Buick, Buick or whatever, and bang, you know you got that in your head. That's all you need. And, you know, punchy writing, lots of action. Uh, And so she thought that style of writing would work very well with kids who don't want all that flowery nonsense. And so, yeah, so I I sort of came up with the idea for the book. I uh, I pitched that to them. They they were very pleased with it, Um, at which point I went to, they said, look, can you come down and meet the family and the rest of the, the estate, the literary estate in Fleming Publications, as they are now? Um, and they said, come to the Fleming building in Berkeley Square. I thought, oh, that's exciting. And there, and there, I went to Berkeley Square, which is Mayfair in West London, this big posh square. And there's this big, imposing building with pillars and everything on the outside. And you go inside, there's marble floors and uniformed people everywhere. Uh, and I'm thinking, my God, you know, I knew uh, James Bond books had sold a lot, you know, over 120 million. And, and obviously the films are the at the time were the biggest film franchise of all time. I thought, well, I didn't know they made this much money. And someone from the estate came to meet me and we're going up in the lift. And I, I say that to them. And they said, oh, no, that's not the James Bond money. That's the banking side of the family. Fleming's, Ian Fleming's grandfather set up one of the first private banks. And Fleming's bank is this huge private bank that makes billions. Wow. Um, they said this is the literary bit. <laughs> Open a door in a in a sort of pillar, a fake <laughs> a fake pillar made out of plaster or something, and there's this little corridor down the side of the building, squashed in with a sort of sloping roof with about four <laughs> desks in it, and there's about four people working there. Say so this is this is the literary side. This is this is the James mm. Bond bit of the building. Um, amazing. Uh, and, and, but, but we did go for lunch at the top of the building. There, there was essentially a Bond villain's lair, this huge, <laughs> huge dining room with the longest table you've ever seen, big glass domed ceiling running down it, oil paintings on all the walls, all these sort of, uh, staff in these quite old fashioned uniforms, very, very obsequious. It was, it was like, you know, a Bond, Bond villain sitting down for his lunch. And I met Fleming's two nieces, Lucy Fleming and um, Kate Grimmond. You know, it was it was fantastic. 
to 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 meet people who had known Ian. You know, yeah. he's he, unfortunately he had one son who who committed suicide, and that so there was no one on directly from him. But his brother Peter, who married um, Celia Johnson from Brief Encounter, the, 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 those were her their daughters, and and so I had a sort of direct connection with Ian, and it was great to talk about them to talk about him and to talk about the thing and they luckily they liked my ideas and I talked more about the book and what would happen in it and um and it and it all went from there so it it was it was really exciting and then you know to sit at my computer and type the words the name's bond james bond oh, was like right. you know, a thrill i'm thinking this actually is james bond i've been commissioned by the Ian Fleming estate yeah. he's not like yeah he's not like james bond's nephew or james bond you know, He's not like Alex Ryder, who's yes, yeah. <laughs> He's not Alex Ryder, who is essentially is a sort of teenage James Bond, but he isn't. And Anthony Horowitz has confessed that um, Alex Ryder is the illegitimate son of James Bond and Honey mm-hmm. Ryder from from Doctor No. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. uh, grandson, grandson, <laughs> not son. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible, because uh, your um, boys, your brother Harry has. Uh, yeah, an affinity yes. for Silverfin, doesn't he? Yeah, so Harry is uh, there's a third. Well, there's actually four of us. Uh, picking. Right, but uh, yeah, he's he's a teacher, um, so he obviously can't be here for this interview. But <laughs> he, he's a primary school teacher, and he wanted to let you know. Uh, he sent us a message. So when he used to take his class to, they have a library session. Even though it was his, he calls it non-contact time. <laughs> he still went to the library with the class because he wanted to sit down and model what it's like to choose a book and settle mm. down to it for a long time. And he he always picked Silverfin off the shelf. And gradually, you know, over time, he made his way through it, chunk at a time. Uh, he says he, he started becoming so engrossed that he forgot his original motivation for going to his class <laughs> for the library session. So it just became all about Silverfin. <laughs> um, but, but then he says one day he was distraught to find that it wasn't on the shelf. Someone had taken it out. Exactly. Yeah. A, student, yeah. a student had taken it out, thankfully. Yeah. Ah, so Harry it. says he originally it was dismayed. But then he was like, Oh, this this is brilliant. This is exactly what it was all yeah. about. So yeah, a young a young mind was dipping the toes into the world of young Bond, presumably for the mm-hmm. first time. You know, that got Harry into the series, of course, but he's he had a question for you, so he put Okay. It's stereotypically difficult to get young boys into reading and writing, and I know Rob will attest to this. But yeah, was there any part of your was that any part of your motivation when writing the series? And as such, what do you think it is about James Bond that appeals to younger readers? That's about four questions. It is, isn't it? Well, yes, it, it was. It was a specified aim from the start when I was talking to Kate. She she did say that part of this that they wanted to work with some literacy organisations and it was part of a drive to to try to get boys to read books now and now luckily the James Bond books like the James Bond films are enjoyed by both sexes if let's not go down that route by boys and girls men and women but you know I you know as I say I, my initial thing was I want to write something that my boys would like write yeah. something that I would have liked when I was that age and in the hope that then you can expend out from that. And yes, it was a time, you know, in, in the beginning of the noughties where there was a big discussion because I mean, what, what had happened is 
uh, you know, traditionally there were lots of adventure books written for boys and very few books written for girls apart from, you know, things like Shelley School and Mallory Towers and things. Most of children's publishing was quite male-oriented. And in the 70s, there was a big change of people saying, you know, we shouldn't, A, we shouldn't be encouraging boys to be reading these violent books, these imperialistic, colonialistic books like, you know, um, Biggles and Tarzan and um, uh, the like. And, you know, books should be trying to encourage empathy and emotion and, um, and, and, and we need to get girls reading because girls weren't reading as much as boys. And so there was a big shift in, in publishing. A lot of those traditional books and series were kind of quietly removed or pushed into the background. And there were suddenly, you know, there were books about emotions and relationships and things. And lo and behold, girls started to read a lot more. And this was very, very successful. But by the time we got into the 90s, boys weren't bothering to read anymore. But it had been sort of ingrained that, well, we shouldn't be writing books all about fighting and sword, swords and guns and all that nasty stuff. But the fact of the matter is, boys like that stuff. They they like books where people are doing things and things are happening rather than, oh dear, I've dropped my flower baby in a pub- puddle. Um, so, I mean, obviously boys do like those books as well. And as I say, girls <laughs> girls really like the James Bond books. So, and, and I think the big shift actually happened on the back of Harry Potter because the, that, the first thing that that did was suddenly it made children's publishing respectable and, and people were saying, oh, actually, you, there's money to be made here. Um, you know, this is a good thing. So, so different types of writers moved into writing for kids who maybe wouldn't have done traditionally. And then we had the big explosion of these boys' books, if you want to call them that. There was uh, Owen Colfer's Artemis Fowl series. There was Darren Shan's Vampire series. And obviously there was um, Anthony Horowitz's Alex Ryder series. And suddenly boys were, were, were lapping these books up. You know, this is horror. This is guns, car chases. This is um, fantasy in the case of Owen Colfer. So there was this big upsurge, which is which is one of the reasons that the Flemings thought, hang about, you know, we've got James Bond. We've got the real deal. Let's do this. And and let's try and get boys reading. And 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 it and it worked. You know, I mean, I have a lot of feedback. I mean, the, the James Bond books are still in the schools and still in the libraries and they're still read a lot by kids my young bond books and i you know and i get a lot of feedback of like oh i couldn't get this boy to read so i gave him this and now he's an avid reader he reads everything and i think part of the reason that those books have have lasted and not dated is that they were set in the 1930s Mm -hmm. so even when i was writing them they were set in this sort of in a sort of fantasy world so as far as a kid is concerned the 1930s is mists of time so they're as interested in the workings of that world as everything else and and you know as you know nothing dates faster than something which is absolutely contemporary bang up to date with today's slang and kids playing today's great computer games video games two years down the line a new kid comes along oh that game's really old-fashioned yeah. my, my big mm. brother used to play that oh nobody uses that word anymore and suddenly you've got a really dated book but you go back to Eton in the 1930s and you know it's like Hogwarts it's a environment
I realise we haven't really got to the, the, the book Yeah, yet. what I'm supposed to be talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's just been a great chat, I know. Um, <laughs> but uh, so on on His Majesty's Secret Service, yes. I mean, yeah, yeah uh, Matt's got a copy, a copy there. Um, Excellent. I, I inhaled it on three separate things. I listened to yourself read it on Kindle. I enjoyed the hardcover and uh, on, uh, oh, sorry, on Audible, I listened to yourself. Read on Kindle at night and uh, hardcover as well. Um, so yeah, you narrated the audiobook as well. That must have been uh, quite interesting. Well, they 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 asked me if I wanted to do that halfway through um, when I was writing it, and I thought, yeah, I do actually because the book is for charity, mm. and so I'm not making a penny out of it. And I thought, oh, if I do the audiobook, they'll have to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> so my fee for doing the audiobook is 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 is. My monetary reward, my my rewards for you know, the, it, it is that I was allowed to write an adult James Bond, which yeah. is amazing. Well, I mean, it's just amazing. But, but yeah, I mean, at that point, I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. At, at which point, I thought, oh my god, I've got a South African character. I've got a woman from Iceland. Who the hell yeah. knows how the Icelandic speak? And I got all these other characters. And I got, oh Christ, I've got. Um, at that point, one of the characters was a Geordie. And I know I can I I can just about scrape by doing some of the others, but no way can I do a Geordie. So I changed him. <laughs> I changed right. him as, as I was writing it because I thought because I mean I had the same problem with, with the with the young Bond books, which I also did that I did the sort of abridged audio yes. versions of. And because Bond's all adventuring around the world, you know, as, you know suddenly I've got a, a conversation between an Indian boy. A Russian and an Irishman, and I, and I, and I've got to switch between them as I'm doing the bloody scene. It's impossible. Um, so uh, you know, I have to sort of do a sort of light version of the accents because in the end, they're hiring it because this is Charlie Higson reading it. It's yes. not. Mm. It's not an anonymous person who can do amazing voices. Yeah. And I found it actually reading books to my kids when I was little. I would always do a big performance and try and do funny voices for everything. And then they they would say, "Can Mum read this book?" Because <laughs> it's her reading it; she's not doing all these. Fits. You know, yeah. it's just, that's what you want as a kid: is your mum to read to you, your dad to read to you, not Donald Duck to read to you. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, you do have a. It's me doing. It's me telling the story. I can't remember what the question was. But, no, no. It's, well, how did it come about? How did how did mm -hmm. yeah. uh, how did, did they the approach book. you again? Yeah, did they did the yeah. state come to you again? Well, you know, this year is the seventieth anniversary of Casino Royale. Uh, it is also the first year that uh, IFP are publishing the James Bond books themselves. They've set up their own imprint. Uh, it's not going out through another big publisher. Uh, and over the years, you know, the James Bond rights have bounced about all over the place and they've slowly been pulling everything in in the same way that Eon has done with all the screen rights. So they're big celebrations for the 70th anniversary, great new covers for the series. Uh, it's a big deal. And then, you know, I, I, I've been in touch with them over the years and, and you know, been involved in the world of, of Bond pretty much nonstop. And so I know them very well. And oh. Corinne Turner, who's kind of in charge, gets in touch, says, Charlie, you know, when you know we're doing all these celebrations. Um, and she said, but it's also the 60th anniversary of on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And obviously we've got the coronation this year. This is February of this year that she approached me. Uh, and she said, we really want to do something called On His Majesty's Secret Service. We don't know what it is. But 
we've all discussed it and the family and the estate and everything. And they said, well, if anyone's going to do anything, we want you to do it because you know this inside out. You know, could you come up with an idea? And, and she said, we want to do it for charity. We want to do it for the two of the royal charities. We want to do it for the Prince's Trust and for Camilla's got a new literacy charity. I could never remember the name of uh, And it's got something like the Queen's Library. And, you know, it, we could do it for them. So, so probably best not to think of a story based around disrupting the coronation or, or assassinating Charles or anything like that. <laughs> At which point, yeah. <laughs> once again, a story leaps fully formed into my mind. I said, look, Corinne, I'm sorry, but that's got to be the story. Yeah, it has she, to be, doesn't it? Yeah, it's she, got said, to be. she said, oh, all right. So uh, <laughs> she goes back to the charities and they said, well, we can't really be seen to be endorsing a story about trying to kill Charles, particularly <laughs> Camilla's charity. Uh, <laughs> so, so that switched to the National Literacy Trust, which is a charity I do a lot of work with. But, and Camilla also does a lot of work with. So that was that actually worked out fine. But they said, you know, probably, you know, because this was February, they said they, wanted, insane. To, they wanted to launch it to be published and in the shops two days before the coronation, which is May. <laughs> so they said, you know, it's probably going to be a short story. And then, you know, we'll make it a proper book. We'll put in extracts from the, on Her Majesty's, and maybe we put some extracts from uh, one of your Bond books, because there's a bit in... Um, yeah. The by last book, on, by Royal Command, where he uh, he meets the Queen when she's a little girl, playing um, in the gardens in the house they had in Windsor Park, which was based on my father-in-law had that very experience oh wow yeah so i nicked that um (laughs) and so yeah they said that we put that and we put some interviews in and some other stuff and we'll 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 make it look like a proper book um so i start writing it and i well so then i come up with the idea what the story is going to be so that the the estate and the, the board can can look at it and so at the end of february they agreed they said yeah great write this story so I sat, sat down at the beginning of March to start writing a short story. And then I thought, oh, it would be great if this happened and then that happened and this happened and that happened. And before I knew it, I had a, I mean, it's a novella. It oh. is about the same length as I think the, the couple of the shortest things. That, mm-hmm. that yeah, yeah. Up, but yeah. that's the yeah, that's right. short stories. Um, although I'm not sure how long Man with the Golden Gun is, but but yeah, it, it's not long. But the great thing about the Fleming books is he hit on this fantastic structure, this way of writing them that that cuts out a huge amount of fat. Essentially, the book starts, Bond goes in to see M. M says, this is the villain. Uh, He's up to something here to do with gold. Can you go and sort it out and deal with him? So all the complicated spying work and putting all that information together, which would normally in in a spy novel or a detective novel, that would be your first half to two thirds of the book that's all been done it's all in a file that n gives to to bond mm. and off he goes and he finds he, yeah he meets the villain he and he kills him and comes back again and that's it there's no complicated double crossing or double agents or amazing twists and turns in the story he just gets on with a job and does it and comes back i'll tell you how refreshing that was yeah you know, like after yeah. the recent, you know, uh, Bond films, I have to be honest, I can't tell you how wonderful it was to get that scene with them 
and going, what do you know about this chap? Oh, this chap. Yeah. Well, in fact, yeah. I know, you know, 800 exactly. pages worth yeah. of facts about the guy. And, then, and it doesn't come across as exposition. It's just someone telling you what yeah, your yeah. job is. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it's brilliant. And and as long as you stick to that st- structure, and again, you know, Umberto Eco famously described it as a series of chess moves. Uh, and you put all those things in. You put the, the, the Bond woman, you put the villain and the sidekick. You've got his... Uh, his plot, his his lair. He, uh, Bond yeah. gets involved with him. He there's a bit early on where he kind of thwarts him or his men, and but then he goes to the lair. He gets captured. He's tortured. He escapes. He kills everyone. He comes home. So I had that structure. So I didn't have to think about that. All I had to do was come up with good elements to put into that. And I had recently returned from a trip to Budapest, which is a, 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 a lovely mm-hmm. city. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. And, you know, I'd really enjoyed it. And, and you know, people were so friendly and nice. And, and you know, I, I remember thinking I was there, you know, you wouldn't know it meeting these people and going around the streets. And, you know, it's very civilised that, you know, this guy Orban is in charge, who is perhaps not as democratic as, as, as some other leaders. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, I can put that into the book and I can, it's a perfect place to set story they got castles so i can put these these lair in a nice old castle so i had that and i put that in um and so once mm. you then got the villain and the idea for the for the for the bond girl bond woman and it just kept building and building and i remember you know and i so i wrote it in a month which was march Incredible. and i remember I, I had a deadline and i was just about to get to it and i and i rang up the the guy ifp simon ward who, who deals with the editorial side i said it's all right if I if I'm a couple of days late because I really want to put a car chase in. Yes, <laughs> they said, "Yeah, go go, go for it." You know? The more this looks like a proper book, the better. So I did, and 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 you know, I from that sort of central nugget, I, I was able to bolt these bits on and and expand it into being what I hope is a good, fun, just straight mm. down the line Bond adventure. It, it is, Charlie. Mm. Uh, uh, truthfully, um, I mean, listeners to this podcast will know that I found the last few years of being a Bond fan quite tough. <laughs> um, and so this ticked so many boxes for me, and it gave me a Bond adventure I've been craving for quite some time. So I, on that sense, I'm really grateful. Um, and it was great to see bond in a contemporary setting being james flipping bond you know um, and and that's what what i really wanted to see i mean i had always thought that if i that if i was ever given the adult bond job and watching it go to sebastian folks and william boyd and anthony horowitz all these great writers and thinking well maybe one day they'll ask me yeah i'd always thought if i did it would it would be a continuation of the young bond timeline i'd always thought of doing the story of him uh, at the beginning of the war, getting involved in in secret service and earning his double O status and all of that, so it would be a continuation. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure I could do a contemporary Bond. But when you did it, and the idea was, okay, it's about the coronation, and it will be published. In fact, the the opening scene takes place on the day that the book was published and was in the yeah. shop. <laughs> so, so yes. I've completely broken my rule of don't make things too contemporary. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but, but actually when I sat down to write it, I just thought, oh, no, this is, this is actually great. And, and, and to keep it enough in Fleming's world and enough of the character, but also to take on board, well, he's a 35 year old man today. He's mm-hmm. not going to be the same as a 35 year old man in 1950, 
52, 53, who is a product of the Second World War, which 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 the original Bond was and which Fleming was. And you know, there's a those books are about what happened in the war as much as anything else. So it's going to be different from that. But he still needs to be recognizably Ian Fleming's James Bond and driven by the same things and with the same kind of basic outlook. And, you know, if you read the book, that's what he is. There's been a lot of people, I'll call them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. On 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 Twitter as it, as we used to call it, but old dummers like me, I I can't keep up. What's it called now? No, Eggs. I yes. <laughs> <Eggs or> something. <laughs> um, uh, you know, saying and, and you know, they've read one one page, which I, yeah, a couple of people yeah. have posted. It's like, well, James Bond can't be woke. And, and, and you think, well, hey, well, why not? Why can't he be woke? As long as he's still James Bond, as long as he's still involved in the action, he's getting off with a beautiful woman, he's killing people, he's doing his job. Why can't he eat kimchi and drink kombucha? And, <laughs> you know, and James Bond always was someone who hated extremists. He hated people who were who were messing things up for everyone else and yeah. he would have hated left wing as much yeah, as right, that, as much as mm. right wing yeah yeah i i i was amazed at the criticism what amazed me really was it took him you know the book came out in may I was yeah at the timing was weird I was expecting at the time when when is this going to happen <laughs> didn't happen i thought oh that's interesting it becomes yeah. a sunday time bestseller people love it yeah and then suddenly months later these people are like as if this book didn't exist before and suddenly it's leapt into their world and I've 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 killed James Bond. <laughs> oh, just, I think it was uh, sorry if it was our fault because we did a post on it and then that seemed all helpful. No, it was Ed West, yeah. this guy Ed West, who is a well, he's a journalist. He may well YouTube. He's a journalist who writes for the and I always get them confused. Which is the right wing one? The spectator or the new statesman? I think it was the spectator. Spectator, yeah. Right. And he posted without any comment, it was a page from the book and i think he kind of circled oh, yeah. a couple of things in I red remember it and he knows who his followers are he knew he didn't have to say anything and they all picked up on it and you know by your followers you shall be known and you look at these followers and their timelines and you think ed are you happy that, that these are the people that love you <clears throat> i don't you know it was fine people more people know about the book now than used to but you know it it, it struck me very much like because originally it was um you know, it was the right wingers saying, oh, Bond's gone all woke. He doesn't like right wingers. And then it was someone else posted another page which mentions that one of the guys in this kind of conspiracy against Charles is a disgraced politician who one of the things he, he said the wrong thing about in the trans debate. So, so then I had all the sort of the, the, yeah. the, the trans debaters on board as well. So it was really interesting seeing all this stuff. I mean, I, I basically just mute people. Occasionally, we'll say something polite, like "Thank you for your interest," and then I'll mute them. So they're, they're probably all out there still screaming at me. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I couldn't understand because for me, this is actually it was factually inaccurate, you know, and it was painfully obvious that it was just that particular sequence. Uh, the, the phrase in it that I remember that that signpost is that "Make Hungary Great Again," thing. <laughs> you know, like that. That within two. So, so factually, they're going on about that. You know that that's something they're very obsessed about, um, and look how you know woke James Bond is now. Within a page and a half, Bond is uh, his internal monologue is uh, you know decrying someone for doing you know he's saying you know you can't do that that's for pussies, which is a, a notoriously unwoke thing to say you know or to <laughs> even think you know and it just became very obvious that 
uh, a flag had been waved about this particular bit without ever taking it yeah, in well, the you know, context it's, it's of the, the piece. It's the interesting thing is, you know, when we were making comedy, people would love it, laugh along and think, great, until you do a joke about something that's close to their heart. Yeah. I mean, the one mm-hmm. that always gets people up in arms as if anything to do with Christianity, for instance. Suddenly it's like, I really like the show. It's really funny, but this is terrible. You can't be doing this. And you wouldn't say this about the Muslims, you know, and uh, and things like that. And it's exactly the same with Bond, you know, it, because I've mentioned a couple of things that are close to their heart. It's the it's the Mitchell and Webb sketch. It's the, the two SS officers. It's like, yeah. Could, do you think we are the bad guys? Yes. <laughs> Hans, I've just noticed something. These communists are all cowards. Have you looked at our caps recently? Our caps? The badges on our caps. Have you looked at them? What? No. A bit? They've got skulls on them. <laughs> Have you noticed that our caps have actually got Little pictures of skulls on them. I, I don't, uh... Hands. Are we the baddies? <laughs> These people out there can't bear the fact that Bond might think that they're a bunch of tossers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, coming to gun for them. You know, they claim oh, yeah. it's like, oh, this is badly written or something, but... No. no, it's not. It's because it defends their... You know, yeah, James, it... Bond, James Bond is taking pot shots at their bubble. Yes, and I Christians, but we love Life of Brian. You know, it's you've got to laugh. Yeah. You can't laugh at yourself. The cut co- point. The Kumbaya sketch in. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's my yeah. show, isn't it? Yeah. That's the yes, that's it you was. Guys. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was the Christian coppers. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. That one. Hello. Oh, excuse me. Can you help me? I've just come from the park. Someone just came up and took off with my dog. Right. Yes. Hold on a minute, madam. Uh, George. There's a lady here who says she's looking for uh, eternal salvation in the Lord. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said someone came up and took off with my dog. Right, scratch that, Jules. She's changed her mind. <laughs> dog, you say, madam. Right, what's its name? It's a she. She is called Jess. Jess. Right, so that's J-E-S-U-S. <laughs> no, she's called Jess and you've just written Jesus. <laughs> so I have. Still, it's a lovely word, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. He died for all our sins, you know, madam. <laughs> oh, right, sorry, madam. So you say you were in the park when you lost uh, little Jesse? Right. Would that be the park by the church, madam? No, the one by the lake. Yeah, but you can see the Church of Our Lady from there, though, can't you, madam? Can you? In that case, madam, would you have been able to hear the faithful singing from there, something like this? Kumbaya, Malone, Kumbaya. Kumbaya. Would you have been over here anything like that, madam? Um, I, I suppose so. Mm. And if you had heard it, how loudly would they have been singing? Would it have been sort of Kumbaya, Malone, Kumbaya. Or more sort of Oh Lord, Kumbaya. <laughs> hmm? All right. Well, um, look. If they had been singing from where I was, um, it would have been about as loud as, um... Kumbaya, my lord, kumbaya. Kumbaya. Kumbaya, my lord, kumbaya. Oh, lord, kumbaya. I can't wait for the lord. 
Yeah, the identity kit thing as well. Yeah. Where Arabella's in the hospital bed or something. And he yeah, had, those he looked good. like this and he looked like that. And he's drawing the thing and then yeah. turns out, do you look like this, madam? And it's a you know, stereotypical drawing of Christ. She said, Why have you drawn that? Well, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, we're not. It's you know it's, these people. You know, there yeah, are and we're not. You know, exactly. And yeah. I've got absolutely nothing against Christians or Christianity, yeah. but you just make you know you you make jokes and you have a laugh, and you know it's like it's like who do they want James Bond's villain to be? But it is actually you know it's a really interesting thing because Fleming himself he started out in the first six books, five or six, five I think, going up to from, from Russia with Love, the enemy. The villains were very much communist Russia, Soviet yeah, Russia. Yeah. Um, and he made no bones about that. But after that book, he comes up with Specton. He comes up with the idea of an, an international apolitical crime organization. And he said, oh, I think I need to stop ragging the Russians. They're actually quite nice people. And But he also knew that things were changing. And he thought well, in a couple of years' time, the Russians could well be our friends again. In which case I don't want to keep knocking them in the books. So he comes up very, very cleverly, this international crime organization. So he's not, he's, he's creating his own villains. He's not using it. Mm. It moves away from being political. And that's what they pretty much stuck to in the films because they want their films to be seen in China. So they're not going to have a go at the Chinese. They want the films to be seen in India. So they're not going to, you know, they, they, they steer scrupulously steer clear of of politics except for a couple of times like um in the the timothy dalton the the the, the living daylights yeah yeah mm. which is in which is in afghanistan yeah yeah and again the villains are russians although is it a often that if if you use the russians they tend to be it's a rogue general yes yeah. Yeah. we're trying to Build bridges with the people in charge, but this rogue general is fighting for the good old days of Soviet mm. Russia. Yeah, so he is you, do, but he's not you. Don't worry, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, who do they come up with as the the great guys is going to help Bond? You know, it's the Mujahideen. Yeah, who um, you know, and that didn't really go well. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no and it's a, and it's a really difficult thing in 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 anything, and particularly in James Bond. Is who is your villain? Yeah. What is the crime? What have they done wrong? What is the, what makes them a bad person? And that's really difficult. And and you know this is why zombies are really useful. For instance, you know I could write my <laughs> horror series about zombies because they're dead people and they have no spokesman. Yeah, <laughs> they're not going to go on Newsnight saying you know. <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting book, but I do think the portrayal of the zombies in it yeah, is, yeah, yeah. is problematic. <laughs> We're not all cannibals. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so coming up the villain is a is a really tough one, and and how do you how can you really keep it away from politics? It's very tricky. But you know, I, when I came to write the book, there's probably a good place to stop. <laughs> when I came to write the book. And I talked before about, you know, you've got the structure, you've got all the elements, you put all those elements in. And I thought, I can do all that, but I don't want it just to be an exercise in doing a pastiche of Bond. Mm. I thought, I want this to actually be about something, to be yeah. about what's going on in the world today. 
And so, you know, I, I'm not a fan of of sort of populist nationalism. But also, I'd been I'm making a podcast at the moment, history of the yeah. the English monarchy, Willy Willy Harry Stee, which you must all listen to. Yes, of course. Um, and I'd been so I'd been doing a lot of research about the the whole sort of the the the, um, the legitimacy of the succession to the throne and how over the years it's been usurped and people have come in and kicked other people off and killed them and and you know we imported some people from Germany uh, to try and make it all work and I liked that idea I wanted to go back and bring my villain is someone who's purporting to be a, a mm. supporter of the Anglo-Saxon the proper monarchy before the bloody French came and, 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 and took over. And I thought that was interesting. And I thought that was fun to have that and, and for the book to be about how people can manipulate Absolutely. this, 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 this violent nationalist populist energy that is out there and can manipulate that for their own ends, which is what the villain is doing in the book. So I thought, sod it, I'm going to make this book about something. We did mm. think Athelstan the Baddie is so good because I mean he's a bit like Elliot Carver in Tomorrow Never Dies, which was yeah. very prescient about controlling the media. But in Goldeneye as well, you know the Sean Bean character, he has this sort of backstory where it's about the, the ends Cossacks and his family betrayed him, bomb betrayed uh -huh. him. Yes. Then it Pierce's line at the end: "In the end, you're just a bank robber." It, all <laughs> yeah. in the end, just actually, I yeah. want money. And I want to take over the, the financial gain, yeah. 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 And yeah. that happens a lot over the course of Bond. So I thought it was a way of a really good way of doing a contemporary baddie who we can all identify with. Yeah. He's using those people who are easily manipulated for his own mm. ends. And he might not even believe in any of this nonsense. Mm. Yeah, matter. it's just yeah. He exactly, sort of confesses exactly. it, doesn't he, at the end? He's like, yeah. oh, no, I'm, you know, I don't think I'm, yeah, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm not stupid enough to believe yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Well, firstly, have you been approached? Is this going to be... Oh, yeah. Please tell me that mm. they're going to use this as the basis for Bond 26. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's very interesting, the world of Bond. You have these two family firms, family businesses, who both think they invented the product. Mm. And actually, neither of them can exist now without the other. Mm. I mean, the Bond books obviously came first, but they are, they've remained popular and have remained sort of big sellers because of the films. Yeah. So they are both in, they are both dependent on the other. But mm. Eon, who make the films, they like to control the films and what they do. They don't really want, you know, it, it, obviously they do have to keep paying the literary estate mm. for, for mm. using the character. They've gone beyond using all the actual stories. So they don't really necessarily want to be caught up with with trying to get rights from uh, for an, a, a new book. They want to be able to grow that themselves. And also, right. as I say, they want to steer clear of politics and they would not want, they would not really want to, to contemplate the, the, the political side of the book. <laughs> they could, I mean, yeah, they could, you could change it. But, but yeah, you know, they do their thing and, and the literary side do their thing you know what was really interesting what you were saying there you know which is obviously coming from a great depth of knowledge about bond and the different plots and the different villains and the similarities or whatever talking about the old films and, and going back to the books obviously is it is it i would say probably 99.999 percent of the the weird people who who got cross about my book without reading it 
have no real knowledge of yeah. Bond and who he is and where he come from. They might, you know, they would have seen maybe the last couple of Daniel Craig films or whatever. But they have their idea in their head what Bond is, and everybody does. We all do, and we all have a sense of ownership. And we all, you know, we're all Alan Partridges. Of, you know, yeah. why do they why do they keep getting it wrong? If only they'd listen to me. And we project our own fantasies onto Bond. We always have done. And and, and so anything that someone does another version of Bond that doesn't correspond with the fantasy image that you've created in your head of what Bond is, which has got nothing to do with Fleming or history of the films, is 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 that that causes people to people's wiring to start fizzing and burning out. <laughs> well, you probably described some of us at the recent films. Actually, I have to say, <laughs> nobody nobody is more critical of anything to do with James Bond than the, than the biggest fans. Yeah. I'm the same. I'm the same. You know, the 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 kind of the stresses on the Eon of making those films. You'd, you'd think by now, Eon have been making films f- since forever. Mm. And this has been, they have successfully managed to keep this franchise at the top for a huge amount of time. Nobody else has come close to doing that for such a length of time. Mm. You would think when they come to make a new film, the studio says, great, make the film, give it to us. No, it doesn't happen. They keep having to change studios. They'll be dealing with a bunch of 20-something executives. And again, they all have their idea of what Bond is and what it should be. And they've got to keep fighting their corner every time making these films. And that they have the energy to carry on is amazing. And mm. yeah, we can we can we can criticize and we can say, well, that wasn't how I would have done it. I mean, certainly my 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 feeling about the last film, and you touched on it before, is that there were only a few bits in it where he was allowed to be James Bond. Yeah. Like the, the mm. sequence in Cuba was fantastic. Mm. The car chase, car chase in Scandinavia, where it was, that was brilliant. Mm. Um, but particularly that Cuban sequence, that's classic Bond. And they showed there's a woman in there, but she's not a ditzy, you know, she's not Brit Eklund. Um, she's <laughs> tough in her own right. And they've got a great scene. Everything you want from a Bond film. It's funny. It's witty. There's great chemistry between him and her. Um, and, you know, it's a great sequence. And you think, if only they could have just made the more of that through the yeah. film. But you can see that they've got it and they've got a story and then oh we've got to get this bit in and how about we do this bit and it starts to get out of control. But but you know, it it, it my little book, the, the few comments I got on Twitter, imagine what it's like for them. Oh the yeah. Storm, mm. The storm of comments and stuff mm. and trying to deal with all this crap. So uh, you know, I say hats off to Ian for for managing to survive this amount of time and, and to keep making films that everyone wants to see and everyone talks about. Yeah, mm. There's always another one around the corner, eventually, and we'll, we'll probably like that one. But reading your book, after we've sort of been like, oh, gosh, where, where's Bond going to next in the films? It was so refreshing how traditional it was. That's why the criticism seems so ironic to me that we're praising it because it was back to the traditional James Bond that we have in our heads, and, and yes, it is. Yeah, but 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 also trying to keep make it contemporary at the same time. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 But yeah. I will say when I when when we did the we did the launch for the book in ta- in London in town, and th- there were two people there who worked for Eon, and they brought two copies up for me to sign. They said, "Could 
could you sign one for Barbara and one for Michael? So oh, wow. Whether they just want the complete set on their bookshelves or whether they'll actually read them, I don't oh, know. Sure. Oh. <laughs> so, well, I mean, but I was so very it, pleased that they would at least. Yeah. Oh, that, that's yeah, so awesome. awesome. That's completely <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Last thing, who is your who would you pick to be James Bond next Ooh. in the world well, of the movies? It's an impossible thing. I mean, I, I really like James Norton. I think he could make a great Bond. But because he's already been discussed as a possible Bond, that means he won't be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for everything, Charlie. Uh, it's oh, brilliant. And whenever, um, listeners, whenever, for for my money, and I'll only speak for myself, but whenever um, Charlie Higson has James Bond, the property of James Bond in his hand, they're good hands for, mm. for our hero to well, be. Well, thank in, you. So. I, I can't tell you how much fun it was writing that book. And just, yeah. you know, I, I channeled Fleming, who famously wrote mm. the books very quickly because he had it all stored in his head, which is what I did. You know, I had a lifetime of adult James Bond and it just went bang down on the page. And that was huge fun. And I've been really, really pleased that, that particularly that the Bond fans have, have liked it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely. Love of Bond shows, doesn't it? Yeah, love of Bond shows, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. Well, cheers. Charlie. Been great to speak to you all. Thanks yeah. so much, Charlie. Appreciate yeah, thank it. You. And seriously, every like honestly, the enjoyment you've given us over the years, man. Thank you. Yeah, for thank, you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, well, thank you all. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> Take care, mate. Ta-da. We have Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.